This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini, and this is a podcast for women over 40. <laughs> Which I always somehow forget. Our guest today is Lindsay Pollock. She's a career expert, and it's a really helpful and smart episode. Um, but before we get into that, I should tell you that we had some technical difficulties. And about 15 minutes into the show, you stop hearing from me. Um, maybe that's not bad. I don't know. It was, it was, you know, it was fine. It was sad. It was, it was, it, it was annoying and it was sad and I didn't love doing it without you, but you know, we, we forge on. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to rebook the guest after we were already into it. Um, yeah. No, that made perfect sense. It made perfect sense to soldier on. I was just so mad and I had a little temper tantrum. You did. And it was so weird because I have not <laughs> seen you like that since you were my boss. So it was a very intense situation because I knew exactly what to do. I knew exactly what to do because I I was your employee for a long time. <laughs> but I need to know. I need to know. Well, I just, I was, well, first off, but I just like, it was just familiar to me, right? It was just like a familiar, like we don't get mad at each other in our friendship. Like we have a really copacetic friendship at this point in our lives. We're really in tune with each other. And if somebody's getting agitated, we're like, oh, let's get on the phone, you know, that all of that we I think we really work things out. I agree. But the dynamic between a boss and employee is very different, <laughs> right? Was it uh, triggering? It was a little triggering. <laughs> <laughs> I think it made me it made me work harder. <laughs> <laughs> I think I worked harder interviewing Lindsay because I was like, oh shit, 
Kim's mad. <laughs> I kept sending you texts that said things like, I am frozen in rage. I know. I know. It was so funny. It was, I mean, it was not funny. It was frustrating for you. And also I am more of an adult now, so I could go out of like terror and into, <laughs> into compassion, into like a high executive functioning. All right. I'm just going to keep conducting this interview while I'm also texting to figure out technical challenges. Um, but I think we pulled off the episode anyway. I think so too. <laughs> and Lindsay's really good. Um, one thing I do want to say to listeners, because I think this is important. We did a call out for questions before we did this episode. And the majority, in fact, all of the questions we got were about jobs and about seeking jobs and resumes and being in the workforce more in a more conventional way. And I think that that's important because there's another path professionally, right? Which is sort of being a free agent and starting your own business. And we'll follow up with an episode with an expert on that um, in the future. But this is really more about positioning yourself. If you're looking for a job, um, you know, how to think about your LinkedIn, how to combat ageism, and a lot of those more conventional career path. I mean, certainly I think there's something in it for everybody. I learned some things, but thinking about positioning yourself, because that was the majority of the questions we got and sort of uh, Lindsay's area of expertise as well. So good, I wanted to good, say that good, up front good. because, and the reason I wanted to say that was because when I put out my book um, a couple of years ago, Weird in a World That's Not, people were like, you didn't say anything for people who don't want a job. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to be very sensitive to people's needs and desires, um, no matter what they may be. Uh, but I think it's a good episode and I think it's really useful. And like I said, I really learned a lot, specifically LinkedIn, which I consider to be a fucking drudgery and a, a hell on earth. She actually helped me rethink LinkedIn as a, um, as not the worst place. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I always yeah. think of LinkedIn as LinkedIn is like very purgatorial. Yeah. It's so dorky. It's so dorky. And then also just like what happens on it? Like the people who message you, I rarely feel like such a loser than when I look at my messages on LinkedIn, because you know <laughs> that you're not getting the cream of the crop. Like, <laughs> you know, the San Jose dentist is not what like a star <laughs> is getting a message from. Um, and a lot of scams too. Yeah. It's like, it's like a work dating app. Yes. It is like a work dating app and um, where people misrepresent themselves and their accomplishments. Yes. 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 Or just like, yeah, misrepresent themselves just a little too exaggerated, a little, you know, just a little bit not right. We're out of reality just a, enough that it's unnerving, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I'm sorry about our technical difficulties <laughs> for you. I'm sorry that listeners didn't get to hear you. Um, and I'm glad we're back. And it seems like, <laughs> yeah. it seems like we're doing okay today. <laughs> yes, we are. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Lindsay Pollack. Lindsay is a leading career expert, public speaker, and New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book, Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work, 
was written in response to the career uncertainty brought on by the COVID-19 crisis. Her previous books include Remix, a book that I love so much about navigating the multi-generational workplace. Lindsay's spoken to audiences everywhere from Goldman Sachs to the NCAA to Estee Lauder, and we're so excited to have her here with us today. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi. Thank you so much. I am a huge fan of the show. You were talking about things nobody else is, so this is just a huge honor. Oh my God, that means so much to us. As I said to you, we never can believe it that people are listening, so I'm super excited to hear it. Um, So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today is not only because COVID has blown up so many of our ideas about work, but also as women in midlife, many of us were already recalculating, you know, wanting to pivot into something new or recharge our existing careers. And I wonder, did you have women post 40 in mind when you wrote this book or how, how did the book come to come to be just generally? It's such a good question. I did not, but in retrospect, because I am a woman post 40, I think that that's kind of been the story of my career. My very first book, I started my career 20 years ago at Working Woman Magazine, if we all remember the old Working Woman Magazine. Um, They launched a website um, where I'd probably still be working. I loved it, but it, it went bankrupt and I started freelancing and I was, you know, 26. So I started writing about all the things I wanted to know as a 26 year old woman trying to build my career and wrote my first book called Getting from College to Career. So I think I've kind of followed this path of wherever I am, I kind of want to know from people who've been there, how did you navigate this? Because I seem to be finding it really challenging. And what happened with this book, Recalculating, is I really didn't intend to write a book. I had just published the remix less than a year before. Um, And when COVID started, my income is primarily from public speaking. And I went from a fully booked calendar of speeches in 2020 to a completely, completely empty calendar in about Mm. a two-week period. Wow. And I started picking up the phone and calling people and saying, what are you doing? How are you handling this? How are you getting business? How are you finding jobs? And I just started doing interviews and that became recalculating. Very interesting. You've got a quote in this book that I really like, and it is several, but this one I liked a lot. Um, Consciously choosing to own your mindset when approaching a tough situation is an essential ingredient in any successful career journey. I thought this was incredibly clutch advice, and I'm wondering how you came to believe it and how one does this. I'm going to say I came to believe it the hard way. Um, This is my fourth book, and I don't think I've ever written a sentence about mindset. I think I always thought there's a strategy you have to follow, and I can answer your questions about LinkedIn and interviews and job caps, and there's a right way and a wrong way. And I've sort of come to understand, maybe it's getting into my 40s, that that's not true and that the real people I admire approach everything with a mindset that they can handle it, that things will work out, that if they put the work in, you know, something will happen, that there isn't just one right answer. And one of the mantras I kind of had in my mind the whole time I was writing is that everybody is recalculating. It's not about hitting a fork in the road and deciding if you want to go left or right. It's about constantly Um, sort of making these very small navigational changes, you know, every way. And that's obviously the the metaphor of the book is when you're driving your car and you make a wrong turn or you hit traffic and your GPS says recalculating. In a way, I find that a really optimistic thing because your GPS never says like, sorry, Kim, 
you got to go back to your driveway and there's no way to go. Or, you know, Jen, like, we're just going to stop. The GPS always finds a way. And so I think the message is if your mindset is there's always a way, might not be what I expected or wanted, but there is a way. I think that's really critical. And I do think it's taken me 20 years to, to kind of figure that out. I was also thinking about the fact that um, you talk about mindfulness here and you talk a lot about tuning out negative self-talk. Um, can you talk about the importance of vanquishing negative self-talk? Yeah, I think this is probably from 20 years of therapy as much as 20 years of career success. But what really struck me when I started making those phone calls is I would speak to people who were in a very similar situation. And a really common one was a woman who had been out of the workforce because she was taking care of her kids or taking mm -hmm. care of her parents. And I would speak to one person who would say, I'm never going to find a job. I've been out of the workforce for a year. Nobody's going to want to hire me. I have this big red flag on my resume. And then I'd speak to another person who had the same situation who would say, everybody's going to want to hire me because I'm raring to go. I'm so eager to get into the workplace. I've had a break. I'm refreshed. And it was the same situation on paper of having been out of the workforce for a year, but they had completely different mindsets about it. And it was just so striking to me that we have a choice you, know, you don't have a choice that you took the year off. That's a fact. But you have a choice how you approach it and how you present it to other people. Mm -hmm. I think that's so spot on. Even in, so we did a call out for listener questions. And throughout this interview, we'll be peppering in listener questions. But the hopelessness, coming from a place of hopelessness, like, is it possible to find a job after 50, you know, is a, a big question that we're getting. You know, I, I feel so hopeless. And I wonder... Even in my own life, I've seen that persistence is really the only way through, right? It's the only way through is to say, okay, this is going to happen. It's just going to take a long time. Or I haven't found the door in yet, but I will if I keep going. I'll get, I'm on a scavenger hunt and I can gather clues and eventually I'll solve this, right? So I think that you get into the difference between people with fixed and growth mindset, which is kind of what we're talking about. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So growth mindset is the work of Carol Dweck, who wrote the fantastic book Mindset and is a professor at Stanford. And the difference is a fixed mindset is saying something like, no one will hire me because I'm over 50, or I'm just not technologically savvy. And it basically says it is what it is, and there's nothing I can do about it. And a growth mindset says anything can happen. I can get better at anything. And the way that I make the growth mindset tangible is that you apply one little tiny word to the end of any of those sentences, and the word is yet. So no one's hired me over 50 yet. I haven't figured out this technology yet, because that changes your mindset into the idea that there's a way to do it. Now, you might not become the most technologically capable person on earth, but you can get better and you can make it happen. And so... I'm never going to get a job turns into I haven't gotten a job yet. And that's where the persistence come in. And I, I don't want to be overly um, sunny about this because it is really hard to get a job over 50 and even over 40 in a lot of industries. And ageism is real and it's insidious. And I see it constantly. And I also see people get jobs over 60, over 70 every day. It just is probably going to take longer and take a little bit more creativity, but it is absolutely possible. 
Right. So coming to a place of acceptance, like, okay, here's the situation, not denying it, not doing that sort of toxic positivity, toxic optimism thing like, oh, well, it's going to be great. It might be a slog, right? It's going to be a slog. And like I was saying before, it's like a scavenger hunt. You're going to get some information here. And if you're open and receptive to feedback too, I, I imagine that helps the situation as well. And I think it goes back to your question about getting out of your own negative mindset, because I interviewed a lot of recruiters and said, come on, tell me the truth. Are you going to hire somebody, you know, who's 57 for this job? And what they said was, look, you definitely have a harder path ahead of you if you're job hunting as an older worker. However, she said, so often I'm not even thinking about age, maybe for a particular job. And the first words out of the job candidate's mouth are something like, well, I'm old enough to be your mom, or you probably think I'm too old for this job. So while you can't control whether ageism is at play, you can control not getting in your own way by drawing attention to your age in a negative way. Do you you believe that people should do things, though, like leave out the year they graduated college on their resumes? Yeah, I do. Wow. Wow. I do. I think that, um, first of all, it's not really the first thing people look at. And if it's not there, people don't say, oh, you left it off. You must be older. Mm -hmm. I think that um, you have to remember that your resume and your LinkedIn profile are marketing pieces and don't lead with the things that are not going to help you as much. So I would emphasize your experience, the keywords that you have, classes that you've taken, all of that, and de-emphasize the longevity of your work history and and the year that you graduated. Now, that's not to say it's fair and that's not to say it's legal that people would hold that against you, but people are human um, and they do look at that. And sometimes, unfortunately, it can get your way. So I do think those little changes are um, something that I would recommend as much as I don't like it. And how about, I'm just really curious, like how about the years you worked at various places? That Is that the same thing? You just don't put the years? What I would do is de-emphasize some of the earlier stuff. So, you know, a lot of people had one or two jobs in their 20s, you know, but if you were at, you know, Condé Nast for 10 years, you're, of course, going to put that experience in what the real years were, but you might leave off a couple things that you did before that. Um, So I would say, you know, obviously you don't ever want to lie and you don't want to de-emphasize your most important work, but you also don't want to draw attention to little things that probably wouldn't be that big a deal to your experience anyway. Hmm. Right. So just, yeah. So the, the bottom, that's a real, that's a really good, that's a really good tip because I remember when vetting applicants, if I saw a four page resume, I was like, Oh, get the fuck out of here. Forget it. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. Um, one thing that you talk about in the book that I was surprised to read in a career guide is you talk about gratitude um, and the importance of gratitude in our careers. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to my own experience. And I remember people always ask you when you're like a career person, Jen, you've probably gotten this, what's the best piece of career advice you've ever got? Oh, hundred percent. Right? People always <laughs> ask that and, you know, feel free to ask it, but I'll tell you the answer is yeah. um, I was on a Rotary Club scholarship in college, you know, like local Rotary Club. And I remember sitting next to this Rotarian who was probably, you know, 119 years old. And he mm-hmm. said, let me tell you something, Lindsay, keep building your contacts, everything you're going to do in this world, you're going to do through other people and your relationships. And I have found that to be so true. But what happens over and over again is that people say, you know, like, hey, Jen, I know that, you know, Kim, you know, and I really want to ask her advice. Would you make an introduction? 
and you make the introduction and then you never hear from the person again who asked it. And so I think remembering to thank everybody who helps you along the way from your college career center, you know, to your friend who makes the introduction to I'm amazed how many people don't send a thank you note after a job interview, which is still 100 percent the thing that you have to do. It's just remembering not just to kind of check the box and say, well, you told me to network and I networked, but to thank the people who help you along the way, because not only does it show that you're a generous, kind person, but it makes them feel part of your success and that makes them want to help you again. So I think gratitude is is incredibly important, not sunny gratitude, you know, but gratitude for the people who help you, which is probably more than you might always uh, acknowledge. Right. And I, I find it shocking I, not to be like those kids, but I'm amazed at how like with millennials and Gen Zers, they don't get some of that. They don't get some of the looking around, being grateful, you know, remembering who helped you. Can I address that? Because I, I do write about generational differences, too. And I've, I've dug into that because I found that, too. And there I, I get a lot of questions from students and I'm thrilled to respond to all of them. It might take a few weeks, but I try. And there was one student who sort of emailed me like late at night, I have an interview tomorrow. There's nobody else I can ask. I read your book. You know, can I ask you some questions? And I was awake. So I, I wrote back to her and I never heard from her again. And oh, I was wow. kind of irritated. And I thought, okay, like teachable moment. And I wrote back to her and I said, you know, usually I don't call people out, but I, I really felt like I went out of my way to help you the other night. And I really would have appreciated. Thank you. I just hope, you know, food for thought. I hope in the future you would do it. She wrote back to my call out email immediately. And you know what she said? She mm. said, I know you're really busy and I had bothered you. I didn't want to bother you again with another email thanking you. Mm. And I thought, oh, she doesn't realize that a thank you is never a bother. It's not another email. It, it's mm. not a ping. And, but I thought it came from a good place of her not wanting to bother me and use up more of my time. And she didn't know that it was really meaningful to me. So I thought that was an interesting reason behind that. Yeah, I mean, I, I found also working with younger people, I found that their, their foundational knowledge of business etiquette is really sorely lacking. And part of that, I think, is because the way business works now is that we don't have as much mentorship and there aren't, there's not an obvious ladder in a lot of cases where you're an assistant for a long time and you're learning and you're learning these like basics of business. Like I, I found that people, that younger people that worked for me didn't know how to send an email, didn't, you know, just these very, very basic like courtesies. Um, but on that, I want to loop around. So one thing that happens around our age is we start working for people who are younger than us. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you think about how you coach people, how you talk about that, because I know you do a lot of like multi-gen uh, workplace stuff, because it can be unnerving to be working for someone who's a lot younger than you. I, I have so many thoughts on this. And one thing comes to mind, I wrote a book called Becoming the Boss, which was more for the younger people becoming managers for the first time, mostly the millennial generation. And I remember I did all these focus groups and I kept thinking like, are you worried about managing people older? And I swear to a person, they all said, nope, no problem managing someone older. So they're not worried about managing us. I just want to call that out. But on the flip side, absolutely, it's an issue. Now, now some people, particularly people who've been corporate for a long time, they would say, like, at this point, I could report to a dog. Like, I've just reported to so many different people. There's been so much turnover, like, whatever. It doesn't bother me. So I think there's that camp. But I think it is unnerving, particularly when you start to maybe have a child who is in middle school or high school or college. 
Um, and I'm thinking of the interview that you did with um, Julia Lithcock-Hames, who I really admire, who said, there's so much to learn from people of younger generations that I think when you are the older person being managed by somebody younger, it's worth remembering that like when we started out, Gen Xers and baby boomers, we sort of didn't have any skills that our bosses didn't have. Like at Working Woman, there was nothing I knew how to do in 1999 that my boss didn't. Right. Whereas now, younger people, we had an enthusiasm and passion and hard work, but we didn't really have a skill set. And now younger people, they could have more digital knowledge or social media knowledge or, or crypto knowledge or whatever it is that is a real skill. That's number one. And number two, I think really at the end of the day, people just want to be listened to and people want to feel respected. And if you can have that relationship with anyone of any age, I think that kind of supersedes the age issue. I'll also say probably the most successful multi-generational environments I find with a lot of older people reporting to younger are political campaigns, because you're so focused on getting the person elected and believing in that person that everything else like kind of falls away. So if you can be more mission driven as a young boss or as an older employee, remember that you're all focused on the same goal. It's not easy every day, but I think that's powerful. It also though requires some egolessness. It requires a real like awareness of who you are to not feel threatened by a younger boss. I mean, I or, or annoyed by a younger boss, or, and especially because they have a set of knowledge that do, hasn't come as easily to those who come after them. It didn't come as naturally or as second nature. I find I, I find that like I I think I'd never tried to get a job in the real world again after Lucky because I really didn't want to work for someone younger than me. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I I see that. I I I hear that. But what I what I think is what I think you're saying, Lindsay, is really the overarching is like getting out of your own way. And I've you know just thinking about that first thing you said of like the comment of like, well, I could be your mother. It's us and our fixed thinking about our age and us not having an openness to, well, this could work. Why couldn't this work? You know, I have something to offer here. This person has something to offer here. You know, I think it's, it's, it's getting out of our own heads with it. And I wonder, I think that's what you you're saying, Lindsay, if I might be wrong. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's a big piece of it. I think it's also deciding what success is for you. So, you know, Kim, I'm sure if you wanted to like contribute to a super cool new publication and the, the person was young, but you were so excited about the overall goal of getting published in that, you know, I don't know, online site, it might supersede the discomfort of having the, the younger boss. I think that as we get older, when we're clearer on our goals, the people that we have to work with to achieve those goals may be less important than the outcome itself. Maybe I'm wrong and everybody's different, but, but I try to see it like, what's the goal here? So for instance, right now, a lot of people really want to continue working from home or working uh, hybrid. You know, yeah. and a lot of other people are going back to the office. So if you can get the lifestyle you want, but that requires working for a younger boss who's willing to go into the office... Right. Maybe that's worth it. So I guess it's about kind of knowing what your top priorities are and, and what you're willing to, to bend on. Well, I think for me also, if I'm honest, it had to do with no longer being a boss. The whole mm -hmm. notion of going into an office and younger or older no longer being the person who everyone answered to after being that person. I think, you know, right after I was fired from Lucky, that felt like a consideration. Now I feel like it's it's a little less of one. I was surprised how many people I interviewed for recalculating who 
COVID taught them they don't want to be the boss yeah. anymore and that they wanted to just be an individual contributor and not have that burden. And a lot of it, I think, was driven by virtual. They said, I just, I don't want to do this virtually. I don't want to manage people virtually. So that was a little bit of a surprise to me. Let's talk about career changing. Let's talk about, you know, your pivots, your reboots, right? So you get to a certain age, you have all this experience, you, you're making a certain level of money, but you hate what you do. You're burnout. How do we move from where we are in, you know, make this certain level, making this certain money, but not liking what it is we do to something else without losing everything or having to start at the bottom? Mm. It's such a big question at any age, but particularly people who put 15, 20, 25 years yeah. into a career. So here's where I found some economic studies that were really data-driven and tactical. And what they find is most people are not making as big of a swing as they think. So for you, it might seem shocking to go from one industry to the other. But when you look at it on paper and you look at the actual measurable skills that you're transferring from one to the other, it's not really that big a deal. And I'll give you one example. I interviewed a guy who was a chef right? And he was done. He was like, I just, I'm done with being in the kitchen. I loved it, but I'm done. I don't want to go back after COVID. I can't take it. And he actually went back, this is a tip, to his university career center. And he was in his 50s. So you can go back, you know, till the day you die to university and ask for help. And he did, um, which I'm sure took a little bit of, um, you know, ego. Yeah, humility. Uh, And he went back and he took one of these assessment tests, which I love, because why not? And they started talking, they went through some coaching, and it turned out that he had a huge aptitude for logistics and running logistics supply chain, which we're hearing so much about right now, which is hot, hot, hot. And he realized he loved ordering the ingredients and he loved planning, you know, the food preparation and the timelines and all this kind of really detailed stuff. He took like a one credit course at his alma mater. And he got a really high paying job in logistics at a corporation after being a chef. Now, that sounds crazy to go from being a chef to going into logistics at a corporation. But when you look at the skills that it required, it was sort of a natural fit. So I think the big message is you're never starting over from scratch as much as you feel like you are. There's often a lot to transfer. And by the way, it's so common more than like 60% of people change careers at some point. So while to you, it feels like this monumental shift, people go like, oh, you were an opera singer and now you're an orthodontist. Cool. You know, that's great. People just are not watching your transitions as much as you think they are. Does this hold true across genders? Like do, do women recalculate as much as men do? Is there no real difference? And are they, and are men more successful at it? I don't know the stats on that, but I do know it's more by profession and ability to transition from one profession to another. And some of those are more female driven. So retail, hospitality, which are often, um, you know, areas with a lot of women uh, being a nurse, right, being a teacher. There's so many career paths that you can naturally uh, go to from those areas that people are very successful in it. And one of the tips I give in the book, it's so silly, but just type in whatever job, magazine editor, uh, career transitions. And you'll see lists and lists and lists of all the top careers people transition into from that. LinkedIn also collects data that people who had magazine editor in their background have transitioned into these 10 careers more than any other. So data can really help you um, define what it is you might have an aptitude for. I, I also think, yeah, it's it's knowing your value too, because a lot of the questions we got, you know, it's just kind of like feeling like lost and hopeless, like we were talking about before, 
without really recognizing your inherent value and your skills, because your skills, your core skills are often transferable. So I think that taking an inventory of those skills is so important when you're beginning these kinds of, you know, thoughts and journeys and explorations, you know, what are my core skills? What do I know how to do? And you might find in what you know how to do, oh yeah, of course, I kind of know how to do that too, because I know how to do this, right? I mean, you also have to be willing to let go of what you did before. Like I have some people who were um, accountants and they never, ever want to look at a spreadsheet again, but they won't take CPA off of their LinkedIn profile headline because they worked so hard to get it. So you do have to be willing to let go of some older things. Another example was a woman who was in higher education and she wanted to transition into the entertainment industry, which is a really tough transition to make, but she kept using the word student and the word professor And the career coach who worked with her said, if you want to make this transition, you have to stop using those words. You have to talk about customer, right? And you have to talk about organization. But it was very hard for her to let go of how much she had invested in higher education to use the new terminology. So I think you have to really look at yourself and your values too. And now let's take a quick break for some ads. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. 
I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. One thing that I've really seen a lot, Lindsay, is I've seen people get really, like you're saying, fixed, stuck. You're spouting your resume when you come into, you know, you're spouting your resume in meetings. You're older and you're sort of spouting your resume in a meeting like, well, when I was doing this and I was doing this and I was doing this and you're needing you're maybe feeling insecure. Maybe you're feeling a little uncertain in a new situation. You're needing everyone to know everything you've done, even if what you've done is not that germane to the situation, right? And I've seen a lot of that sort of stuckness of like, but my experience is so important when actually just not have, like, of course your experience is important to you, but it may not be as important in this working situation. And it may not help you succeed by bringing it up all the time or by being so attached to it. And I wonder if you found that, if you think about that. That is such an important point that in order to get what we want now, whatever that looks like, you have to let go of what you don't want anymore, even if it served you really, really well up to this point. It might be a job that you were to be. Look at how many people on, on Twitter or LinkedIn, their bio is formerly X, Y, and Z. And that's fine, but that's not going to get you a job, right? Because they want to know what you are aspiring to now and what you want. And so I think you have to really choose actively to have a mindset to pivot towards what you want. And I'll tell you just like a thought exercise that I use with a lot of people just on LinkedIn is I'll say, imagine that I'm charging you $100 for every word on your LinkedIn profile. Are you going to buy all the words that relate to the former career that you had? How important is it to you to hold on to that history? And I think when you look forward and you find role models who have made the transition and have made the pivot and have let go of some of those things, it can really inspire you to not talk about it. It doesn't mean it's not part of you and it can't be one line on your resume, but it can't be 75% of the story that you're telling. Yeah. I think there has to be flexibility, fluidity, you know, like, okay, it's okay to let go of this. You're still great. It, but just because it doesn't matter that you were vice president of that company a while ago, it doesn't mean that you don't have value, right? It doesn't, that does, that is not a significant part of this, of this new journey you're on, right? And that's another piece of advice for people who are job hunting in your forties or fifties or sixties and beyond, which is when you are looking at jobs, 
spend more of your time and energy getting excited about what's out there and what the possibilities are and what you can learn about as opposed to thinking about what you're going to tell them about you. So if you spend the majority of your time in an interview, I, I think people make the mistake of thinking, you know, if I'm applying for a job, you know, to be to work on your podcast, I'm going to have to tell you all about me and everything I've done. Whereas we'd probably do better if I spent the entire time talking about what I love about your podcast and the ideas I have for your podcast. So if you can turn your attention away from what you did in the past and why that's a good fit for the company toward what you've learned about the employer and what you want to contribute, that kind of forces you to be forward thinking in what you do. I, I look at people's cover letters and I just cross out the word I if it appears too many times, because it's not about you. It's about what you're going to contribute to them. Oh, that's really, that's really important. Oh God. I, first off, I hate cover letters so much, but <laughs> it's a universal truth. It is universal just, truth. they're so tough. They feel so contrived and like dancey dancey, you know, but it's a, I, I know they're necessary and particularly they can be necessary if you're trying to explain, you know, I took a break from work for all of these years, but since then I've, you know, I've done X and I've done Y, you know, I wonder what you think about tailoring your resume differently for different jobs. Cause I feel like this is an easy trick that a lot of people don't actually do, but that can be really helpful. Um, tailoring the resume, just sort of tweaking the language that shows that you might, your experience might be more relevant for this particular position. 100%. This is challenging though, because most applications now people are going to look at your LinkedIn profile and you can only really have one LinkedIn profile. Right. So when you are submitting a resume to a particular job, absolutely customize your resume, including very specific keywords, matching word for word sometimes what they're looking for and using that language on your resume when you're submitting to a particular job. On your LinkedIn profile, you're not limited to one page or to one application. So put it all on there. I think one of the things that people miss is in the, the summary box, like the bio box on LinkedIn, you have a ton of characters that you can use. So you can really fill that with lots of keywords and examples. So for instance, if you're applying for jobs in consulting, but also marketing, uh, but also business development, you can have like a header that says consulting experience and then a header that says marketing experience so that while you only have one LinkedIn profile, you can be a little agile in what you're doing. But just to go back to the, the reason behind this, nobody wants to think that you are generic and they are generic. Nobody wants the common application to give a, a college example. They want to feel special and like you put in extra special time to tell them why you want to work for them specifically. And that's how I try to reframe the cover letter, which is this is your opportunity to show them what you have learned about them and why you're a good fit. It's not about you being perfect. It's not about them being perfect. It's about you making the argument that you're a perfect fit for them. And it's those puzzle pieces fitting together that is the job of the cover letter and the uh, resume being um, targeted. Yeah, because as you get older, you do tend to make it more about you, especially if you've had high, you know, high up positions, senior positions where you have a lot of people reporting to you, you have a lot of power. It can be a very humbling experience to be going in to a new, uh, you know, to be on a job search, you know, sort of hat in hand. It can feel that way. And you forget sometimes that this isn't about you, that it's about them, that it's about their choice, about what they need, what their company needs. I think that's so, so important. Absolutely. So follow them on social media. 
set up Google alerts for the name of the company, study their executives and their products. If it's a retail store or any company that has retail assets, go in them, right? If it's a bank, go look at their bank branches, sort of have a personal experience with the company and their products and services so that you're not just generically talking about why you're a good employee. You're talking about what you've learned about them and what you have to offer. And by doing that, you're showing the humility that people want, particularly from an older applicant. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're afraid that you're going to be stuck in your ways. I mean, I, I, when I was younger and I was a hiring manager, I absolutely had that, you know, I Mm -hmm. absolutely had that feeling. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, that you wrote about, because, you know, also we're so in, especially being shut in for as long as we've been, we're so in like a compare and despair thing, right? We're seeing people and we're like, oh, they're winning and I'm losing, you know? (laughs) And you've written that envy doesn't have to be a negative emotion, but can actually motivate you instead of causing you to shut down. How and why is that true? Well, this is a game changer, which is I doom scroll just like everybody else on right. social media, particularly during COVID. Oh, Jen's book is doing better than mine. Oh, <laughs> your Amazon number is better than my Amazon number. And and I think in a way, LinkedIn and social media play to this, which is the grass is always greener. Somebody has got something cooler than you do all the time. And that's really demoralizing. And there was some research I found that passive social media scrolling is totally toxic, right? All you do is compare yourself and feel terrible. But active social media scrolling can be really energizing. Active media uh, social media scrolling is like, huh, I want to change careers. I want to find 10 people in my social media feed who look like they really like their job. Oh, Kim looks like she likes her job. What did she do? What's her background? How can I learn from that? And I think we do this when we are redecorating our home or when we're looking for like a new fashion, you know, a new style. We're like, oh, I'm going to go and find somebody who looks cool and kind of learn from them. So if you can reframe envy and jealousy as studying role models, I think that can be really, really powerful. And, and something I didn't have when I started my career, we didn't have LinkedIn. We didn't have a way to study what jobs people had had and how they described themselves. You better believe every author and speaker on LinkedIn, I've checked out their profile. I've borrowed words from how they describe themselves so that I can try to you know, make my career better. And this is not an easy thing to do. You have to sort of decide to do it. But I think that that can be really powerful to see what you want to become. Yeah. And equally, I have always said that when you are really jealous, when you really feel like that true spike of like activating envy, that means that like you want to change, you, Mm -hmm. you want, maybe you want, you want the kind of thing that that person has. And instead of like sitting back and just letting the jealousy, like eat you away, like eat away at you. I totally agree. Start being active. I want to start, I want to start moving down a different path and it might be slow and it, you know, might take me a long ass time, but like Mm -hmm. at least you're on the path being active and being on the path feels a lot better than this, this passive jealousy, this passive, you know um, you know, comparing all the time. I think that's so smart. I'll give you a really um, good but painful example of this. And I think it really is about those small steps. We spend so much time being envious of other people. And and, um, when COVID happened and I lost all of my speaking, there were some very dark days, as I'm sure you can imagine and everybody relates to. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to turn this around. I got to find something to do besides giving speeches. And so one of the ideas I came up with was, well, I know a lot of authors who teach at colleges, right? They have adjunct teaching jobs. 
And there was a particular author who had adjunct teaching roles at two really, really prestigious universities. And immediately my brain went to, well, that's because she's better than I am. And that's because her books sell better than mine do. And that's right. because people like her more, you know, all that stuff. And then I thought, well, I kind of know her through a network. So I'm going to reach out to her and ask how she got those gigs. And guess what? She wasn't perfect. She wasn't better. She told me I reached out to 200 colleges and two of them hired me to teach. And I thought, oh, she did the work. She sent 200 emails. She took action and I didn't. And that was such a lesson that this stuff doesn't happen by magic. It happens by taking these little steps over time and not giving up. She could have given up after the first 80, but she didn't. And that was just a really big lesson for me. Yeah, that's that's totally it. And you know, I, one thing I always try to do, um, uh, one other thing I always try to do on social media is really dispel. Like, I really want everyone to know how hard the journey was. Like when I got my book deal, this latest book deal, I wrote a long thread very intentionally about this is how long this took. I had to go through several agents. I had to do, you know, 17 revisions of this book proposal because I really wanted to spell these myths that like, poof, it just happens. You know, it's just like, it's fucking magic. It's Ditto. like, you know, many you, agents, many failed proposals. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that that once you get right about at any age, I feel like once you get right about what it is you want to do, because I feel like that's sort of the first step, then you can kind of backtrack from there and, but understand that it's going to take you, it may take you a really long time. I think patience is a big part of this game at our age. I think one of the hardest questions that I receive to answer, but one of the most common is I want to recalculate, but I don't know what I want to recalculate to. I want something different, but how do I figure out what it is? And it reminds me of my first book, Getting From College to Career, where people said, everyone says, follow your passion. I don't know what it is. How am I supposed to find it? Right. And I think the only answer is you've got to just start exploring and trying anything. And there were a lot of people who started by just volunteering anywhere that they could or applying to jobs and then realizing, oh my gosh, I got an interview that I didn't want. Okay, well, take that one off the list. So go into your Twitter feed or, or Instagram and follow a hundred companies that you think you might want to work for and look at which ones you actually follow and are actually interesting to you. Um, take out 50 people for a cup of coffee or a Zoom call and talk to them about their careers. Go sign up for 10 volunteer opportunities in your town and see which one is actually interesting to you. I think we try to figure this stuff out in our heads and that's impossible. The only way you're going to find what you want to do next, if you're not sure, is by trying a lot of stuff and seeing what you actually enjoy, because it might be very surprising to you. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because I love to write and speak. I didn't know you could be a writer and speaker. right? right. And then I went and I tried law and I hated it because law is about arguing and I hate to argue. I'm terrible at it. I didn't know it was that until I tried it. So I think get out of your head and get out there and try anything as a first step. And I think we tend to avoid that and think we'll figure it out without actually experiencing things. Yes, absolutely. One another thing that gets in our way, I think, is I want to talk about burnout. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about burnout and how that can kind of get in our way and what people should do about burnout. So another really common question I've been hearing and still hear is, I get everything you're saying. It all makes sense, but I don't have the energy. I just don't, 
I, I can't motivate. I think languishing is the word that, that people are using. Yeah. And, and we are still in a pandemic. I think we, we haven't really talked about that, but this is still going on. And I think that the only thing you can do is think about what is the absolute tiniest baby step that I can take to move forward. So maybe it's changing one word on your LinkedIn profile. Maybe it's not even signing up for a class, but deciding that you're going to bookmark the webpage of LinkedIn Learning so that you can think about signing up for a class. Action is really the only antidote to any of this, but it doesn't mean it has to be a big action to move you forward. But that I think is really the only thing that that anyone can do. And, and I think for some people getting over this or getting through the burnout or the depression or whatever is standing in your way is just going to take time. And I, I wish I had a way to get around that, but unfortunately I haven't found one. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I know that it's, it takes a lot of like optimism, a lot of like, you know, self-care, positive self-talk, you know, all of, all of that. Um, I'm trying to, I want to make sure that I get through listener questions. Hybrid versus full-time in the office. How do we navigate that as managers? That was a question from a listener. That's a very relevant to our time. Yeah. So I think that we're still in the messy middle of this whole situation. I think anyone who says they know what the workplace is going to look like in six months or a year or five years is lying because we've never done this before. And so I think there's going to be a lot of test and learn. And many of my corporate clients are calling their return to work policies pilots, which to me says we don't want to commit to admitting that this is an actual plan. So first I would say, you know, kind of wait a little bit, wait and learn, test the waters. I don't think that any of this is written in stone yet. And sort of observe and take notes on what's working and what isn't. So where is virtual really serving you and serving your team and getting results? Where do you feel that being in person is really important and getting results? And I think one mistake that a lot of organizations are making is they're calling people back into the office, but it still feels like Zoom because we're just in meetings or we're in our offices, isolated, on Zoom calls, even though we had to schlep into the office and commute. So if you're going to call people in, give a reason, like we're going to all have a social lunch, or we're going to do something like volunteer together, or um, we're going to each give a presentation about what we've been working on so that we can reconnect in person. But I think really, I think almost being more mindful of what happens well virtually versus what happens well in person is something that people can do. And I just, when I said volunteering, I just wanted to go back to that idea of, of languishing and figuring out what you want to do. Another lesson I heard from a lot of people who were really struggling was the only way they came out of that burnout is they started helping other people. They started volunteering or they started consulting with their services for free. And by helping other people that got them out of their own heads enough to kind of re-motivate for their job search. So I just wanted to throw that in as well. I think that's so important because it's also part of the burnout is, you know, it's like a, it's like a cycle, right? You have a boss that maybe treats you poorly and like you're inadequate and then you start to feel inadequate and then the boss treats you more and you feel more inadequate. And I think part of this shifting and finding, you know, jobs, roles, careers that, that suit us in this age is really that sense of value that I have value to bring to this and helping people really helps you connect to that sense of value, I think. And I think we haven't really talked about the great resignation theme that, that we're seeing all over. It's very real. 
And I think what it is, is, is a great reimagining of what people really want. This is not a bad time to be job hunting, no matter what age you are. This is not a bad time to be career changing. And by the way, if it's a miserable failure and you want to go back to what you did before, nobody's going to fault you by saying, well, the pandemic was just, you know, a real, you know, crazy time. And I made a mistake or I made a choice that I didn't like. I think we almost have cover right now to be a little bit more experimental um, and try different things and see if that change we always wanted to make was there. The other thing I'll say um, was after Working Woman shut down, I worked at Working Mother for a period of time, but I really wanted to continue having my own business. I worked five days a week and then four days a week and then three and then two, then then one. I never jumped off a cliff. There are ways to kind of dip a toe into other communities, other careers, you know, entrepreneurship, the gig economy, nonprofit, you don't always have to make a huge leap. You can just start networking in an industry or read a book about a different industry or take a class about a different industry before you ever actually change your job. So I think there are ways to sort of go through some of the motions of recalculating without completely upending your current situation. Without like blowing everything up, without just blowing it up. And then you're in a situation where you may have put yourself in a, in a, you know, then, then you might set yourself up for failure because now you haven't considered, you know, you've blown everything up and you haven't considered that, that ease and that transition. And so moving into a new job with that kind of abruptness or new career with that kind of abruptness may set you up for failure. I do think this is a, this is a long game, even though it feels like it can't be a long game because we're older, it's still a long game and it's a long play. Absolutely. Just dip a toe, follow a new industry on social media. There are all these little things that we can do. They're not as exciting, but they really do kind of give you a sense of what you might need. And I think there are more tools and opportunities than ever before to have these little interactions in an industry or a company than we could before. I remember going to the library in college and having to look at articles about working women on microfiche to, you know, to right. do my research for the interview. Now you just go and follow them on Instagram. And it's a really different world with a lot more opportunity to explore. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I wonder, you know, one of the things that you, you talk about is building like a sort of career brand for yourself, right? A career story, a personal brand, a resilient personal brand and career story. A lot of people our age have never had to do that. What's your advice for, you know, somebody who's just like, oh, I need to tell a story. Like you're talking about LinkedIn as if, I mean, I bet a lot of our listeners aren't even on LinkedIn or haven't looked at their LinkedIn in years. Like, how do we build that resistant personal brand and career story? What are like three steps or something that would start that off? Sure. Um, My argument for LinkedIn to re-engage with it or engage for the first time is, it's really the only way where, only place on the internet where you could kind of plant your flag and say, if you want to view me as a professional, this is it. I have chosen this. Nobody else said it about me. This is who I want you to see me as professionally. And I think that's so powerful. And I'll tell you, I worked um, as a LinkedIn trainer for six years for LinkedIn um, as a consultant. And the absolute most important piece of your quote career story on LinkedIn is your headline. That's what people look at. People are lazy. They're not going to read your whole profile. Nobody is going to read your whole profile. But when they see your name and your face and that little headline about you, that's your opportunity to say, this is how I want you to see me. And so going back to the example of the former accountant who never wants to do accounting again, so many of those people, their headline will be former accountant, CPA, you know, and then seeking opportunity as XYZ. Don't lead with what you don't want to do anymore. So number one, lead with what you want. 
So if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to go into product marketing, if you want to go to a mission-driven company, say that you are a mission-driven professional slash former consultant, right? So lead with what you want is number one. Number two, the first sentence of your bio is the most important and tell people exactly what you want. After a 25-year corporate career, I'm eager to join a high-growth startup so that I can apply my expertise to um, you know, new products that will you know, change the world for pets in this country, whatever it is that you're looking for. So be really intentional about what you want to do and what you can contribute. Not, I have 25 years experience doing X, Y, and Z. It's how are you going to apply it to other people? And then finally, and this is just super, super tactical, is... Make sure your photograph looks like what you would look like going to a job interview for the role that you want. So if you want to go into corporate, your photo should look corporate. If you want to go into a museum or gallery, you should look a little bit creative and artistic. If you want to work for a, a gaming company, you've got to look kind of hip and you know cool. Um, it doesn't mean look younger or different than you are, but you've got to look like you're walking into a job interview for what it is that you want. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, having a photo, having a photo on your LinkedIn profile, like not looking like a bot. I think that that's, that's also important, right? <laughs> Do not look like a bot. That is point four. Do not look like a bot. Now that said, remember that you are kind of networking with bots. So you're networking with humans, but you know, I guess a, a final point is make sure that you have keywords in your LinkedIn profile. And this is a little different for people who haven't job hunted in a while. If the job uh, description says human capital instead of human resources, use the term human capital in your LinkedIn profile. If they talk about somebody being mission-driven, use that phrase in your LinkedIn profile. So you do want to be very deliberate to use the current lingo for the industry or fields that you want in your descriptions about yourself. That is so smart and so important because a lot of times we have the skills. The skills are the same. Mm -hmm. but they're being talked about in a different way and making sure that the language, the way that you're talking about work is not outdated. I think that's a really, cause that's a flag for people like, Oh, they're going to think that we're doing it this way, but we'll do it this way. Now, if you don't look modern and relative relevant, you know, that's, that's so important. People focus on like what you talked about the years of graduation or having gray hair. I think it's less about those markers than things like the language that you're using. And by the way, again, shout out to college career centers. You can go and get your resume and LinkedIn profile critiqued by your university career center, no matter how long ago you graduated. I highly recommend it. It's almost always free. I love that so much. Lindsay, where can people find you? Because I want them to find you and your books and your knowledge and everything. Thank you so much. Um, LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I try to practice what I preach under Lindsay Pollock or my website is lindsaypollock.com. L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-P-O-L-L-A-K. Thank you so, so much for coming on today. This was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I know listeners are going to get a lot out of it. My pleasure. And thank you for having a podcast for women like us. Totally. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, rate and review it across platforms. It really helps us get the word out about the show and reach a bigger audience. If you want to support the show, 
you can join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. On our Patreon, we do monthly live events over Zoom. We have bonus episodes and we have exclusive content. You can also find us on Instagram at EIF Podcast. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And if you want to send us an email, I know this email address is long. It's everything is fine, the podcast at gmail.com. It does work if you spell it correctly, but I know it's long. If you don't want to do that, just DM us on one of the other platforms. Oh, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 